to the Liberal Europe Podcast, the European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. And what a great show we have today. I'm very, very excited to bring you Santiago de la Presilla. Santiago is a former journalist with experience in the central and eastern part of Europe and also on Ukraine. And he's now a speechwriter and political officer at the ALDA Party Secretariat. In fact, I have been pestering Santiago to come to the podcast for some time now, since I am, and in here, I appeal to my podcast host privilege, fascinated with the process of political speech writing, what is needed, how to do it, and how can humor be included. This is an amazing conversation, and I want to thank Santiago and, by extension, the Alta Party Secretariat for all the access that they've been giving us, me and Elf, to being at the center of the political processes. But now, without further ado, I bring you Santiago de la Presilla. I'm here with Santiago de la Presilla. Santiago, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Ricardo. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's great to have you here. And in a topic that I'm very interested, so I'm using my podcast host privilege here, And I actually tracked you down in Stockholm while we were at the Alta Party Congress. And you were so kind and accepting to come to the podcast and talk about political speech writing. But before that, tell us a little bit about yourself. What was the path that you took to get to the point that we're not talking on the podcast? Yes, I mean... I'm glad that you caught me in uh, in our Alde Congress in Stockholm, which uh, went very well. I guess the the answer would be very similar to to other speechwriters. This is not a job that you apply for on LinkedIn and that it's you know openly available and that you've studied for. Now you're breaking um, my heart. I know, but uh, <laughs> so the way it worked for me is that uh, well, I used to be a journalist. I worked in Central and Eastern Europe, mostly based out of Warsaw. Uh, actually majored in journalism, worked in Ukraine, worked in Hungary and Czech Republic covering uh, conservative politics, uh, EU politics, uh, and uh, and of course the, the, the first war uh, in Ukraine. Um, and then sort of started getting dragged into the EU bubble, naturally, as most people in this town. Um, and then of course, uh, Ended up dabbling and switching to the dark side, as you would say, going from actual, you know, journalism and seeking the truth mm. <laughs> to try and make the news a little bit and try and uh, <laughs> try and translate a little bit some of these very difficult political or policy messages into something that's more uh, palatable for people. Right? So I think you told everything we need to know on the podcast. We can close it now. That <laughs> <laughs> is going to the dark All right, side. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> Now, let me stay here for a little bit. So you, you just said that you're a journalist. So in the beginning, as you were starting your career as a professional, this was your undergrad, uh, you study uh, journalism, and then you decided or also that just came by circumstance? Well, I was always attracted to uh, when I graduated high school, like everybody else, I didn't know what to do with my life. I'm always skeptical of people that know what to do with their lives you know, <laughs> as soon as they're as, when they're kids. Huh? I was 18 years old. I didn't really know what to do with my life. And I always liked to write. Uh, I wasn't particularly good at it. But I, I always either watching um, the news or at the time when Vice News was a big, uh, a big media. Now that mm -hmm. they're going bankrupt, uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's crazy to think. Um But that, around 2013, 2014, I, I started following a reporter by the name of Ben Anderson, who is still active. He's, I think, one of the best journalists that are out there right now. Uh, and he was a war correspondent, worked in Ukraine, worked in Afghanistan. And just looking at his stuff, I was like, wow, this guy is amazing. I want to be like him. Mm -hmm. um, 
what can I do? And then w- what happened is that I, I got very lucky. I got, I got a scholarship uh, to study in, in Warsaw in Poland. Uh, I thought it was, I've always been fascinated by Central and Eastern Europe. So I thought it'd be, you know, why not? Let's take the leap. Started studying and immediately began working. Um, as I don't think journalism is something you can just study, right? I just I started freelancing and then started working at a magazine called Visegrad Insight, which was covering, um, you know, what was happening at the time. Now it's the new normal, but what was the beginning of the rise of, of you know, populism mm-hmm. uh, and, and conservative politics and Euroscepticism and what used to be uh, really good, as you could say, um, the good students of uh, of, uh, of Europe, right? And then things have changed. We've gone a long way. Uh, and that's how I, how I got my start in journalism. Uh, Visegrad Insight, you're good friends of ours. Just two more quick questions. The, you started on conservative politics. That means that ideological, you were also close to that and then you... Absolutely not. Okay, cool. No, no. I was so just trying to cover... Let's get that yeah, out of the way. Try, yeah, don't worry about it. Now that I work for the Alde Party, can you imagine? No. Um, well, conversions are welcomed. That's true. That is true. It wouldn't be a bad thing. That's kind of what I'm trying to do now, right? Try and get people on our side. Uh, easier said than done. But no, uh, when I, what I mean by that is, uh, you know, uh, the, the conservative comeback uh, that is, you know, parties from, from a remarkably right wing and the political spectrum becoming mainstream mm-hmm. in, in Europe. Yeah, kind of a new conservative, a new right. And my last question then on this is, how was it in Ukraine? It was amazing. It's a country that ever since I visited first, I, I was in love with. Um, unfortunately, you know, if I have to give you an anecdote, it would be, I interviewed this gentleman by the name of Alexei Chaban, and uh, he, he, he had his moment of fame. Uh, he's a, a former soldier, or rather tank mechanic, mm-hmm. um, who in, in the first invasion in 2014, uh, he became famous because he his tank crew disabled the Russian tank, um, and then uh, they took the crew uh, as, as prisoners of war. And then he found out that uh, one of the one of the soldiers was a kid. He was 18, 19 years old. And then he took a picture of him with his phone, and then posted it on Facebook uh, as a letter to the soldier's mom, saying, mm. "Your child shouldn't be here. He should be at university partying and, and, and enjoying his life. And instead, he's here fighting a war that's not even his." Mm-hmm. Um, and when I interviewed him, I think, you know, we, we don't interview soldiers enough. Uh, they'll give you with a, with a very dark sense of humor, the way they see things and basically predicted everything that was going to happen. I think in a way, if I had to go back, uh, and, and, and look at the, the way that journalism is being done now, and these are the real heroes and people that are reporting what's happening in Ukraine right now, I think we should encourage more of that. And see what they're saying now and see how they look at their future in their country once this war is over. Thank you for sharing that story. Let's dive into the topic that I asked you to come uh, here and talk to me. Again, as I said previously, you're pushing into an open door. I'm a big (laughs) fan not only of speech writing, but also of the process and also from the people that are behind it. When we talked in Stockholm, as you mentioned a minute ago, we were exchanging exactly our interests in this. You do this for a living. I'm just very, very curious and, and very passionate about it. And actually, we're talking about some of the speechwriters that we know. You know them personally, which I'm very jealous, but I also <laughs> follow their career. So let's go to the first question, which is when thinking about speechwriting, um, from the outside, 
you naturally believe that there's got to be this strong but concise message. She has to be passionate, but has to be factual. So no demagoguery. And people have to relate to it, but at the same time, they have to get a message from it. They have to be inspired by it. How do you do it then? It sounds easy. <laughs> yes, I mean, I think in a way, uh, the, the same way that I did journalism, uh, the first thing that you do when you're asked to write about something, a particular issue, is that you go back and see what other people have said about it. So as I would do when they asked me to talk about I don't know, the war in Ukraine, I would be like, okay, so who, what can I look at that's been written in the past as the best thing? And I would do the same thing for a speech on any issue. I also read about energy, about foreign policy, EU affairs, Ukraine, right? So I would do the same thing. I would go back uh, and then we can talk about examples of, of politicians that I find inspiring. Yes, you have to be factual, but you can't get bogged down, right? Uh, and then depends how long you have. Sometimes I have had notice of I have to speak in five hours. And then, of course, what you're going to write is going to it, it usually shows if you've only had five hours to, to write what you've uh, you've been tasked to write, um, then it shows. But if you have more time, uh, then you can really rehearse. The first thing I do is just before even researching, I try and get my narrative straight. So I try to just sit down and vomit all of my ideas, even if they don't sound good. I'll rewrite them a million times, but try and just write everything down first, then see if the messages actually fit with the facts. I try and, of course, not use acronyms, not use numbers, really. They're, they don't convince people. Um, what I want to do is for people to be, when they're listening to the speech, to to feel strongly about it, that, to see that they're nodding. And so I'm very happy, and it, it does happen rarely that I'm in the room when the, sp the speech is being given, and I just I don't look at the speaker, of course. I don't look at, at, at Elon or Timmy, <laughs> our, our dear co-presidents. I look at the crowd, see how they're reacting. Um, are they listening on their, their phones? Are they nodding? Are they disagreeing? Um, I think that's the best way to get a gauge of, of whether what you're writing is good or not. I'm sure you get some a lot of anxious <laughs> moments. <laughs> <laughs> No, to be frank, none that I can think of. I try and stay away from those. Right. If I'm very nervous about it, I would um, I would just not be there. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, for for the for the you know, a big thing would be whether or not they they're using prompters, right? That's a big mm -hmm. thing. Uh, obviously, it changes the dynamic. But then, of course, you know, for for a lot of the for a lot of the speaking. You know, really the best, and, and it applies to to both of of, of the of the um, of the politicians that I that I write speeches for. They're best when they're off script. Oh. Um, so what you want to do really is make sure that they get four or five ideas of the narrative in their head, and then they can sort of say it in their own way. That's really when they're in their best element, and that's what I'm very much looking forward to the to the European campaign. Very interesting. Um Let me uh, circle back to something that you said before, because that part is just tremendous and we'll go into it. But you just mentioned that you come up with a narrative, you clean it up, you see if everything checks out. But the process before that, so when we think about, for example, MEP, Timmy Dooley or Ilium Kachuk, they'll come to you and they will be vague enough to let you have some... Uh, some working area or they're going to go like, all right, I want you to hit this, this, this and that. And then you write that narrative. Yeah, I've had the privilege of working with them for over a year, which has allowed me to 
you know, they're both specialists in their in their own mm-hmm. area. That way, I mean, it's it's cliche, but it's true. I mean, the longer you do it with that one person, the better you'll get at really getting their voice and finding their voice. Most of the time, if they're invited to speak somewhere, there is a theme. So I am constrained a bit by what they're going to speak of, whether it's energy or Ukraine mm-hmm. or EU enlargement, for example, just to, you know, just to name drop a few. Um, but yeah, I do get a few pointers from them. We do some feedback. If if it's in person, if we if, if we can get you know the the part where I can have a conversation with them with the first draft, that's ideal. That doesn't happen very often. We don't have the luxury um, of time. But both of them, I mean, really do give me creative freedom, um, and and do give me most of the time like really good feedback. Uh, because you know, as a writer, you can get caught up, and then you 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 write it down, and then you're like, okay, this sounds amazing. Right. And you think that you have the best feature and then you send it over and this is like, absolutely not. I can't say it like this. It's, it's not me. Right. I, it's not going to sound good, um, which is why, you know, you, you really need to to be able to know them and, and to be able to have that open uh, conversation. OK. And another batch of anxious moments, I'm sure. Absolutely. So it gets to a point. The, let, let me ask you then the, the other side of this question, which is, could it get to a point that one of the politicians that you work with come to you and say, hey, I want you to hit this, 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 and that. And you look at it and you're like, uh, well, that would be pretty much what I can suggest you to say. Because as, as you mentioned a minute ago, sometimes you just it is just better to give them pointers and, and let them be themselves. How often that happen? Or there's always a, like a lot of a lot of work to, on your side. No, there's always a lot of work. If you want it to be good, you got to put in the work. I've, I've rarely written something really quick that comes out like very well. <laughs> Um, that, that rarely happens. Well, you're, di- you're disappointing me there, buddy. <laughs> well, the reason being is that, you know, if you're going to do a panel, for example, and it looks quite awkward when people are holding cue cards, mm. right? So what you want to do is make sure that they read it on the plane or they read really quick before they get on a panel or do the speech and then that they internalize the, the, the talking points. Uh, and that they're also, what, what I always try and tell them, and that they're both excellent at it, is do not be afraid of repeating yourself. Mm-hmm. Because when you repeat on yourself, all that means is that you're on message and people will remember what you said. Um, so I think that's something that happens too often that people are afraid of. Yeah, that is one of those keys from communication. Exactly. What are, in your opinion, then the experience that is needed or you can obtain it to able to find then not only this flexibility in writing to be straight to the point, but also to find your own voice, like you were just saying a minute ago? I think it's better to go straight to the point, but then also you have to like to write. And then I was doing writing even when I knew nobody was reading it. You know, have your own blog or write your own tweets or just to enjoy writing and also to consume a lot of media. I mean, I spent too much time on my phone and on my computer <laughs> the club. listening, absolutely listening to speeches and reading articles and, and just obsessing over the way that people communicate, um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, of the of the uh, political speakers that I think are on par with you know with Barack Obama right now in Europe, Kaya Kalas mm-hmm. is by far one of the best speakers in terms of heads of state. Mm-hmm. Um, um, she she's able to be compelling, deliver a message, and and to have become even a recognizable face in in places that you never heard of. The the former prime minister of Israel, uh, Yair Lapid, he's also a fantastic speaker and a fantastic uh, communicator. Uh, very good at driving a message, very compelling. So drawing inspiration from from people that are already 
networking and building that narrative. And then at the end of the day, you know, they happen to align uh, ideologically with me. So it's not bad to draw inspiration from them as well. So tell me, be honest now, is there like this secret conference of political speech writers across Europe? You know, you guys <laughs> meet and talk about what Kasia says, but is, that happens or not? Uh, there's a WhatsApp group. I'll tell you that. Does that count? <laughs> well, please uh, tell us more. Uh, <laughs> something that you mentioned that I really want to get back to, and I'm a Twitter addict, so uh, that is the reason why I, I want to jump in and throw you a curveball. Do you think that adding Twitter to the political debate process, and includes, I'm sure, political uh, writing and political speech, and, and, and the way that we have to shorten our message, to clean it up, to, to make it really punchy, is that something that Twitter actually was one of the good things about this digital platform, was to give people the need to be good at that? I think you're onto something there because I think you're right. I'm like you. I also spend way too much time on that app, uh, more than it's healthy. But it does force the people that like to talk a lot to shorten it, make it concise, uh, and be able to sell it to, to a wider audience, right? So just basically to get to the point, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that is something that's good. As to whether that's helped with political discourse, I, I, I don't think so. Mm. I think in a way that's the, that's the only positive. But then at the same time, when you're on Twitter, you aren't really speaking to a general audience. You're speaking to, you know, policy wonks, uh, people in the media, people in political circles that, you know, you have to show off to and, and make sure that you're heard. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's a way of, of going directly uh, to, to the media because people, most people aren't on Twitter. It's just a, it's a simple fact. And, and, and then to think that Twitter is the world, I think is a mistake that too many people make too many times. No, <laughs> please don't say that. <laughs> I think that the, the whole world is Twitter and Twitter is the whole world. We'd like to think so. So uh, I need my fix. Actually, I need my fix right now. Let me open Twitter. <laughs> now, uh, let's get into editing, because that is something that you just mentioned. Writing, you have to have that pleasure of writing, the editing, the editing, and then you edit again, and then you clean it up and you edit again. When you do that, uh, do you do it just by yourself? And then you have like a, one last edit that you can show, like, for example, your politicians or your staff, or this is a, this is a joint process? It's a joint process. So I do, I always wait until the last minute to send it. I know it's not a good thing, but I always wait because there's always something. I always change something in the end. The edit, you know, from what I usually write, I may edit a document eight, ten times. Mm. And I always do it before, right before it happens. Um, I, I, I also like to take a break and not look at it for a day. Mm -hmm. Um, and then look at it with a, with a different set of eyes. But then I consult on the policy areas. I mean, I'm not I can I can write a speech on Ukraine with my eyes closed. I follow it so closely that it's very easy. If it's on energy, I like following energy. I have fantastic uh, colleagues here at the Alde Party that are experts on energy. So I'll, I'll consult my colleagues. Would you adhere this and what would you put in terms of policy that we're actually pushing for? Uh, that then I can translate into, you know, something that's more, you know, we're not talking about targets here, right? Or or, or a percentage that's very specific. Uh, but I do get help, not so much in the editing process, but more on the policy side. 
um, to try and make sure that things are factual. Uh, and if it's really a topic I have really no clue on, right? A policy expert, lifesavers, you need them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they usually go around in the middle of the editing process. Um, but then, uh, yeah, I, I look at things eight, nine, ten times even, and we'll take advantage of having to submit it the latest I can, <laughs> so I can have, I can give the best, uh, the best version of it. Uh, listen, dude, eight, ten times—that is way, way, way too less than than the twenty, twenty-five that I was expecting for you to say. <laughs> um, let me let me stay here again uh, for a little longer. Have you ever? Or does it happen often that you get to a point that you're like, no, sorry, that one, I'm not going to take that sentence. I really need that sentence to be there. It makes the whole thing together or is a transition that I, I don't want to give in to. Or if those edits come from their staff or, or themselves, you're like, ah, I have to rephrase the whole and redo the whole thing. Does that happen often? It happens often. I'm not going to lie. Yes, it does. If, especially if it's a topic that I feel strongly about. So, of course, you want, you know, the most to, to put your stuff in there, right? This is what we do things. Uh, it's it's um, the only thing that is, you know, and I haven't been doing this job for that long, but the only thing that's better than having um, someone speak with something that you've written and say the words that you've written is having someone else copy it. I think you have these arguments the idea is to try and convince and that, and that's really how I go about it, whether it's with the, with my co-presidents uh, or um, with a policy advisor or somebody from, from their staff and try and convince them that this would be the way, uh, the best way to convey it. Um, but it, it, yes, it happens often. And, and then uh, usually a phone call is enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think to be, to be honest, I think that, that the argument sort of adds to, to the conversation and, and, and at the end, ultimately it also can make a speech better because it, it gives you a different perspective of, 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 of something should be said. As we are getting into the end of our time together, uh, there is a question that I have to ask you which, because in reading about it and listening about it, particularly with our friends from the United States, There is this idea that speech writing, political speech writing, is also about humor. In fact, I found a quote from Philip Collins, which was a former Tony Blair speechwriter, where he said, speech writing is a bit like comedy. Uh, So that means that you go to the comedy club (laughs) and you you, you, in Brussels and you practice your bits. Uh, How does this thing work? I'm really interested to know. I I am a... A big fan of stand-up comedy and in general, and uh, and, com- and comedy in general. I've always found it something hard to do um, to have some humor. This is something that you have to consult, of course. Huh? You you have to make sure that you talk about this before with with the person that's going to give the speech before I actually bring it up. Uh, but hu- humor is an incredibly powerful tool uh, to deliver mm-hmm. a political message, but it has to come across as natural. A scripted joke, there's nothing worse than a scripted joke uh, or a joke that, you know, people didn't even really react to. Uh, I think it's 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 yeah, bombing in a political speech. Is, is, <laughs> it sounds terrible. I'm cringing just thinking about it now. So you have to be very you have to be good at it. It's it's difficult. It's something that I'd like to put more um, in the work that I do. But, you know, it may be that sometimes in these circles, uh, the, the speeches are very solemn. Uh, they could be a little too policy oriented. 
uh, and they don't leave uh, beyond the you know the usual crack uh, cracking a, a casual joke um but that you could actually you know be funny legitimately funny uh and light up the room um with something that you're already talking about that could be very serious huh could be a joke about the war in ukraine i mean look at the way that uh, zelensky right i don't think it's an accident uh that he he did comedy before he did politics mm -hmm. uh and that he's such a such an, an impressive figure that could light up a room uh it can get very passionate and can be very serious Uh, but uses uh, humor as a as a tool really for coping as well, mm -hmm. uh, and I think it's extremely important. Let's talk a little more about the mechanics, and that is if if you have a great idea for a joke or a humorous uh, comment, where do you where do you put it? Do you put it in the beginning to uh, because there is this idea that it should be in the beginning, so that, again it it breaks the ice and people they relax and 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 they have a connection. Or is it dependent on the narrative where it can you can you can fit it in better? What would be your uh, your choice if you had one? I would go I would go with the classic of saying it in the beginning mm -hmm. to break the ice, okay? Because uh, that's easy. It does you know it does make it easier for the audience to then get comfortable and and, and get into what you're going to speak of. Mm -hmm. uh, but yes, it it really depends on the narrative. Huh? Um, a good speech and, and a good speaker would be able to 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 crack a joke in the beginning, um, in the middle, in the end. It really doesn't matter where you put it. Um, but it, it of, of course, it depends on the setting. I feel like I could talk about this with you for uh, another half an hour. In fact, I'm going to ask you if you come back to the podcast sometime soon so we can talk about twitter <laughs> i'm looking for <laughs> let's do it i'm yeah. looking for someone to talk to me about twitter like for three years now so i think i found the right person i'd be happy to but before i let you go uh let let our listeners uh, know where they can know more about this really fascinating topic and then how can they follow you online well you can follow me online on twitter at uh, de la presilla Uh, which is my last name. You can spell it out or you can put it on the podcast. I always struggle with telling people how my name is spelled. The long Spanish name. <laughs> I'll put it yeah. on the show notes, don't worry. <laughs> That's good. And then really, I mean, there's no one platform for people who like speech writing to just follow people that you think are good at speaking and obsessively watch their videos and, and, and watch the way they handle themselves uh, in, in public and in formal settings. So no number for the WhatsApp group? Is that what you said? No number for the WhatsApp group, unfortunately. I keep that for myself. <laughs> Very good. I've been talking with Santiago de la Presilla. Santiago, it's a great uh, person. I, I really enjoy your company every time we meet in this bubble that you mentioned, the Alda uh, Party family. He's also a speechwriter and political officer on the Alda Party Secretariat, and we You and we and all of us together have a lot of work to do for this European elections. Yes, we do. But thank you so much. It was very generous to give you me some of your time and to be continued. Thank you, Ricardo. I really appreciate it. I'm back. Just reminded that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place.
This podcast is produced by the European Liberal Forum, co-founded by the European Parliament, and have the support of the social liberal movement Think Tank in Portugal and Liberty Foundation in Poland. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers alone, and these views do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. Yeah.